All right, while well, everybody's finding finding their seat. Men's prayer breakfast will be this Saturday morning at 7.30. We have a special guest. It's Dan Crenshaw, who is running for the uh, uh, House of Representatives Congressional District 2, which is from Spring Branch, and then it kind of goes up through King... Uh, Kings, Kingwood and um, Woodlands and up that way Conroe and then on up on up north anyway he'll be uh, he'll be speaking uh, it's really heated up the other side is really giving him uh, a lot of uh, pushback sending out I mean every day I'm getting these negatives on him and I'll let you know that I've talked to him about all these issues and this other side is just well they're not being truthful I'll just say that So, problem is, and what's interesting is there's a woman who's running for, I think it's Congressional District 5 up in Dallas, who is, um, who I know through APAC, and she's a, uh, she's a charismatic Christian, she's very, very conservative, and her opponent is, and she's running a grassroots campaign like Dan is. And uh, her opponent is a congressional rep. Had been served in the state house for several years, and is running against her. And he's doing the same thing that uh, Dan's opponent is doing. Same background. So apparently, the the uh, uh, campaign managers for these people who are uh, run. Uh, have political background and running against a grassroots campaign or just making all sorts of outlandish. That that seems to be the game plan. So take that for what it what it's worth. But okay, so we need to be in prayer for our nation. And we have a number of people who are facing serious health problems, so we need to continue to be in prayer with them and and those prayer requests go out, and they're on the prayer list, so be in prayer for those. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit uh, during our time when we study his word. And then uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to your ever-present help in time of need, and we face situations in this congregation with friends of this congregation where there are a lot of people facing uh, medical challenges, some of which may be quite serious. We pray for them. We pray that you would strengthen them, strengthen their families, and that their times in the hospital or nursing homes would be an opportunity for them to be a faithful witness to your grace and your goodness and that they can manifest the love of God for those people and that they can make the gospel known. Father, specifically, I want to pray for Tommy Ice and his recovery from having a pacemaker put in this morning. Thankful for good news there. Also pray for Wayne Martin, who was supposed to cover some for uh, me when I'm gone in a couple of weeks, and but has been scheduled for back surgery. And we pray that that won't be too uh, difficult and will alleviate the problem. Father, we also pray for others in this congregation that are facing a lot of recovery, some situations that may um, be preparing them for their transition to heaven. And Father, we pray for their families to strengthen them and to encourage them, and they might have wonderful time together with their loved ones during this time. Now, Father, we pray for us as we study your word that we might be strengthened and encouraged and challenged in the area of love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, where we are studying aspects related to this particular verse, 1 Peter 4, 8. And the challenge here is to have love, a fervent love, for one another. The challenge for believers to have love for one another is a challenge that I think a lot of people over the years have tried to somehow dilute the significance of this command. But when we go to John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus makes it very, very clear that this is a new commandment, and it is a commandment that is going to distinguish the true disciple from just an everyday believer who's just glad he's going to heaven and that's about it, or from unbelievers. It is the, the ultimate distinguishing mark of the maturing believer who is a disciple in Christ. The idea of fervent is the idea that this is a a tenacious, unwavering, unflinching love. The word passion is a good word if it's understood correctly. You may have a passion for football, and that probably means that you get a little emotional when you're watching your favorite team and they're not doing well or maybe they are doing well. But that's not the idea. It's that if you are really a passionate football fan, you're going to spend a lot of time studying statistics and reading about it and learning the strategies and tactics in the game and reading about your players and their what's going on with them every day. In other words, it's an intellectual pursuit that has emotional overtones. And so passion has that area of emphasis, not just uh, the idea that we often see with love in our culture, and that is that it's just an emotion, that it's a feeling, that it's uh, sentimentality at worst, and sometimes it's just often thought of to be characterized by certain uh, overloaded positive emotions. But there are times when the people we love aren't too lovable, and that people we know who are not too lovable, need to be loved. And there are times when uh, we're not too lovable. And that's because we have sin natures and they have sin natures. 
And the issue in biblical love is that we love those who don't deserve it. It's not because we love them because they're kind and they're wonderful and they're good to us and they react the way we want them to react to the things we want them to react to. That's just a pagan view of love. That's the world's view of love. Anybody can do that. But that is not the biblical view. That's not the Christian view of this kind of love that Jesus is talking about. And that's emphasized because, as I've titled the lesson, Love, a Fruit of the Spirit, that is shows us that this love goes beyond what a normal human being is able to manufacture in terms of love. It is something that is supernaturally developed and matured in the growing believer. That's why it is a mark of a disciple. Jesus said, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples is your love for one another. So we have studied this. Terms of the command to love one another fervently is seen also earlier in 1 Peter one twenty-two to love with a pure heart. And that doesn't mean it's emotional. Again, heart has to do with the inner thinking of the soul more often than not. In fact, only a few times in Scripture does heart indicate something that is emotional. About 99% of the time, heart is a as a figure of speech for the innermost core of something, the core of your being, and focusing mostly on your intellect, your thinking, how you think. And so it, the idea of purity indicates integrity of thought. And that's why when you look at it in 1 Peter 4, 8, that it comes out of a passage that has already been talking about praying with objectivity and clarity in terms of being sober. So it, it's the right kind of thinking. It is not emoting over people, but thinking clearly. So the core passage for understanding everything else about love in Scripture is John 13, 34, and 35. And then in the last few weeks, we've talked about what the Bible teaches about love And last time we began to talk about God's love in terms of his integrity. The word integrity has to do with something's wholeness, its completeness. And that is often the concept with God. He's uh, talked about the word pleroma is often used with God, his fullness that relates to completion. And this is talking about the the essence, the if, if any attributes of God are more foundational than others, then it, and that would only be logically, that would be these that are established several times in the Psalms and linked together. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So mercy is the outworking of God's of God's love. His Uh, faithful, loyal love and integrity. So this is what makes God's love distinct. It's not a self-serving love. God doesn't love others because of what they're going to do for him. That often is the case with, with people. We love people because they've done something good for us. We love people because we want them to do something for us. 
We love people because we like the way they make us feel. I've often somewhat sarcastically talked about how two people come together at a marriage ceremony, and often you want to have a little asterisk there that when they say, I love you, that the, what the vows really say is, you have made me feel so wonderful. I'm going to give you the rest of our lives to continue to make me feel wonderful. And then the other person is saying the same thing. Because the orientation of our sin nature is self-absorption. And love is just the opposite of self-absorption. It's being totally absorbed with other people, but not for the sake of gain. I recently was at a, uh, a memorial service for a mature believer who was a, a good, godly man. And I've known him for most of my life in a lot of different circumstances. And there were people who talked about how wonderful he was and how when he was in your presence, this was true, when he was with you, he would talk to you. And he would talk to you as if there was nobody else in the world that mattered. And you, everybody always had this feeling that they were, if, if you were, uh, had been his pastor, because I know about five different men who were pastors, uh, his pastor over 65 years of being a Christian, or 69 years of being a Christian, each one of those pastors thought he was the, his favorite pastor. I mean, each person that he worked with, they thought that he was their favorite because that's just how he made you feel. Now, that goes back to the fact that this guy had been a world-class salesman, and he just learned to do that and to focus on people and the impact. But over the years, with his maturity as a believer, there was a genuine interest in people. And a lot of times it was very difficult to find out about him because he was so busy trying to find out about you, but not from a, I want to somehow use you or sell you something. That might have been how it started with him years ago, but it wasn't the way he ended up as he matured as a believer. So love as something that is the opposite of being self-absorbed has to fit with an ultimate absolute of perfect righteousness and justice. And the world wants to look at God and say, well, how can you be a loving God if you allow horrible things to happen, if you allow injustice, if you allow suffering, if you allow pain? And the reality is that God, his love is greater than anything that we can imagine. And his love is such that it is more loving for him to allow people the freedom to make their own good decisions and bad decisions to accept him or to reject him and suffer the consequences than to override any volition or free will and force them to do what he would want them to do. So it's more loving to let them fail and brings evil and sin into the world than to override volition and have everything wonderful but then people are loving you out of, out of necessity, out of the way they're created. It's not a free volitional response. So love must be consistent with righteousness and justice. And that has tremendous implications for, for the love that we have for people and the love that we think we have from people. 
because love is always related to a person's uh, integrity in the sense of their sense of righteousness and their sense of, of truth. And somebody who doesn't have solid moral character and a foundation cannot truly love because if you're self-absorbed and everything is all about you, then you truly cannot love other people because as soon as there's a problem, you're going to run off and go somewhere else because because you can't handle that It's all because it's all about you. So when we start off talking about the integrity of God, there are several passages in Scripture that talk about God is something. One of these is that God is love. In 1 John 4, 8, we read, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Just a straight statement. God is love. This, you can summarize all of God's character in these three key terms that we're going to talk about here, a couple of terms. That God is love. 1 John 4.16 says, And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So twice in 1 John, he emphasizes that God is love. A second thing that we see in 1 John is that God is light. And God is light is emphasizing the attributes of God that emphasize his rightness. He is holy, as we studied on Tuesday night. That means he's unique, he's distinct, he's one of a kind. You can't really compare him to anybody else because God is above and distinct and unlike anything else. There may be certain things that we think about that are partially analogous, but nothing is totally analogous because God created everything else and only God is eternal, only God is perfect, only God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. No one loves like God loves. No one is righteous like God's righteous. No one is truth like God is truth. That's his holiness. He's righteous. That is, he is the absolute standard for what is right or what is wrong. He doesn't have, there's not some autonomous standard hanging out there in uh, the ethereal world that God is living up to. God himself is so right and so pure and so uh, just that nothing can approach it. He is the definition of those. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It is absolute perfect, brilliant light that we cannot look at because it is so pure and bright. First John, rather Leviticus 11.44 connects, I'm connecting the holiness to light. Light is often said to be a picture, metaphor of God's holiness. In Leviticus 44, God says, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate. That's a form of the word kadosh for holiness. It means to set yourself apart for God's use. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. So because God is unique and distinct, anyone who is approaching him has to be 
ritually and spiritually cleansed in order to be in his presence. That's what we've been studying in Isaiah 6 on Tuesday nights. You shall be holy for I am holy. And this is quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 1.16 because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. So we have God is love and emphasized in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16. And God is light, that is, is righteousness, justice, and holiness. And we looked at this last time in terms of the attributes of God, that he's sovereign, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, veracity, and immutability. And it is these four attributes that hang together to form that, what we're calling his integrity. Love is totally consistent with and compatible with righteousness, justice, and truth. Therefore, for love to be truly love, it has to be compatible with that. Now, you and I can really never approach that too much. But what we can do is God loves us on the basis of his character. Our character will never have the integrity that God's character has. But we can love on the basis of his character. We love because he first loved us. We understand who he is and the distinctiveness of that divine love. And that is what the Holy Spirit produces in us. Those attributes that are listed as the fruit of the Spirit in First John, I mean, excuse me, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, 20, 21 to 23, those attributes... For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. All of those attributes go beyond the normal human expression of those attributes. Because when we're expressing them apart from the Holy Spirit, it's just our sin nature expressing that. You know, any unbeliever can have a measure of those attributes. But those attributes are supernaturally produced by God the Holy Spirit, which is what Galatians 5 is talking about. So we love... And our capacity for love and the integrity and richness of our, of our love is developed because of our walk with the Lord. So the third point, when we take love and plus righteousness plus justice plus truth and that equals integrity. It's the harmonious relationship of these four things that bring about divine love. They're not incompatible and they're not contradictory. The problem is when you start as a creature with a human viewpoint definition of love that is based on human experience, not on starting at with the Word of God, with the cross, with John 3.16, with Romans 5.8, with other passages, when you start defining love from your human experience, then it's always going to be flawed because you're always basing it on fallen, corrupt human beings whose concept of love is grounded in their self-absorbed sin nature. And so that kind of love is always going to be incompatible with perfect righteousness and justice. And so you think about uh, saying God is love and you think, well, we have all these horrible things that happen. Or another example is that you think of love and you say, well, God is so harsh. He prohibits people from certain things. And, and well, he prohibits them from uh, sexual permissiveness. And he prohibits them from uh, homosexual love. 
And yet people are born that way. That's part of their nature. And so God is an evil God because he won't let people do that which conforms to their nature. Well, let's put that in biblical terms. God tells people, don't do those things that conform to your sin nature because therein lies the path to death and self-destruction. And everybody has trends in their sin nature. You may have a trend toward mental attitude, sins, and self-righteousness and being judgmental. You may have a trend towards uh, sexual licentiousness. But one isn't better or worse than the other. Arrogance is just as horrible and self-destructive in many cases as, as many forms of, of sexual sin. And yet what often happens, you see this in the ministry, and I've seen this many, many times where some pastor gets involved with some woman that's not his wife and everybody cluck, clucks and tut, tuts and isn't that terrible and he sh we just can't believe it of him. And yet they're all operating on arrogance, which is just as self-destructive, and they're gossiping and slandering. And you just have a whole complex of one person manufacturing sins off of what somebody else tells them. And that's all bad. You know, I'm not justifying one person's sin or another, but so often we're, we're so mired in our sin that's not ever talked about. I've never heard a sermon yet on the arrogance of pastors. And yet that ought to be a frequent message because most many pastors out there, and the way the world works in elevating pastors is they're some of the most egotistical people around, and it's all about them. And, and they're just out there performing. Uh, and I'm not talking about a lot of guys that are, you know, biblical exegetes and expositors because many of them are growing in the right direction, but there's so many that are frauds in the world, and they're not walking humbly with God. They're, it's all about them and their church and their growth and everything else. So when we start off with flawed definitions of love or even righteousness and justice, then we end up making these completely incompatible. But only when we start with the Scripture and the pictures that the Scripture gives us of God sending His Son to go to the cross to die for us do we begin to capture the essence of what real love is. And it's interesting that when you go through the Scripture and you start looking at commands, for example, when you talk about uh, marriage, you go to Ephesians chapter 5, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, the reality is that's not much of a, of a command. Why? Why would I say that? Because every one of us is to love every other one of us as Christ loved the church. See, God's not giving the husband something that isn't expected of the wife and his brother and his kids and every, other, every believer that he knows. Every Christian is expected to love other believers as I have loved you, Jesus said. So God's really not telling the husband to do something that is exceptional. It is exceptional only because it's so rarely demonstrated. So that's the basis we're talking about in integrity. We have passages in the Psalms that emphasize this. Psalm 11.7, for the Lord is righteous. 
That's his character. Again, we have this clear statement, the Lord is righteous. We've seen that God is love, God is light, God is holy, God is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance upholds the upright. So God, in terms of a personal relationship, God can only love that creature that has perfect righteousness as well. That's why he had to give us his righteousness is because after Adam's fall, we didn't have righteousness that was good enough for him to love us. So he gave us that per- that righteousness. <clears throat> he loves righteousness and justice. The whole earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 33, 5. Psalm 89, 14, which I've talked about already. The righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. In Psalm 97, 2, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne. So, so again and again, this, this connection of righteousness with justice and love and truth are talked about in the Psalms as foundational to understanding who God is and the expression of his character toward his creatures. So I want to go on and go, moving from this position, I want to talk about Old Testament examples of divine love in the Mosaic Law. Now, isn't that interesting thought? That the God of the Old Testament is a God of love. When you listen to some people who criticize the Bible, they talk about the God of the Old Testament as being this harsh judicial God who is wrathful and always punishing. And they say, see... He's not a God of love. Well, my first response to that is, let's examine that definition of love because the way you've defined love would exclude righteousness and justice as being incompatible with love. So therein lies part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that the Bible clearly emphasizes God's love as part of his character in the Old Testament. Twenty-two times we have the word love used in various ways, some of which is talking about God's character. Others are talking about why we should love God, are used in Deuteronomy in the book of the law. That's just in Deuteronomy. Uh, I haven't done a search to see how many times it's used in the Old Testament, but here we'll have a little pop quiz. How many times is love attributed in the Quran to Allah? None. Zero. Nil. So how can the Allah, you have a lot of Christians today who are out there saying that, that we all worship the same God. Well, I know, I know, I've got a couple of different people I could, I pick out in this, that, but I know different people in my life that have the same name. You know, I have a gardener whose name is Jesus. Let's talk about him. I have a plumber whose name is Jesus. And I always talk about the fact that Jesus solves all my plumbing problems. So when we talk about him, though, how do we distinguish them? Jesus the gardener, from Jesus the plumber, from Jesus the savior. How do we distinguish them? Their attributes, their characteristics. You know, I have, I have friends that have the same name. 
how do we distinguish one from the other? It's their attributes. It's their, it's their characteristics. So when we look at Allah, and we see that Allah is never said to be love, and that never does Allah's actions be, are just, never are they described as love, can that God be identical with the God of the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament? No. The God of the Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whereas the God that Islam worships is the God uh, of Abraham and Ishmael. Is that the same God? Not at all. So the idea that Allah, just because the name it has some etymological similarity to the generic word for God in Hebrew and Aramaic, which is El, doesn't mean that they're the same person just because they have a similar name. So the, one of the unique characteristics of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that he's a God of love. And he expects love from his creatures. For example, in Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. In Deuteronomy 11.13, we read, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. And then in Deuteronomy 11.22, For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to hold fast to him. So what I've pointed out in these passages is that in the New Testament, I mean in the Old Testament, it's emphasized that love for God is measured by the degree to which you obey his commandments. Now some people say, see, that's legalism because those commandments are in the law. So we're free from the law. No, that's not quite how it works. That's a bad definition of legalism. When you get into the New Testament... In John 14, 21, we read, He who has my commandments, and, and that's Jesus' commandments. It's not talking about the Mosaic Law. This is in John 14. This is in the Upper Room Discourse when Jesus is preparing his disciples for their future ministry to the church. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's talking about enjoying fellowship with God. John 14.23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus repeats this again. And in verse 24, he says, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine but the Father who sent me. So the point that he is making here in these verses is that there's a metric for determining our love for God. And that has to do with our obedience to the word. And uh, if we're not obedient to the word, then we're not going to be manifesting the character of God. We're not going to be walking by the Spirit, and therefore God the Holy Spirit isn't going to be producing love in us. 
Now, there's another perspective on love. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. We have another perspective on love that is lost today. And this is where we see the connection between love and justice. That love in our world is defined as permissive. We have too many parents who are too permissive. They don't want to train their children and discipline their children and in some cases utilize corporal punishment for their children. But this is essential because unless you view your child as a sin nature, a rampant active sin nature wrapped up in the flesh and that your job as a parent is to teach them to control that sin nature, then you will produce a hellion for a son or daughter who will have unrestrained self-absorption. This is why Proverbs says that that if you uh, do not use uh, the rod of correction, then you will destroy the child. This is necessary to teach them how to exercise self-mastery. There's another level of self-control that comes as a result of the spiritual growth. It's part of your your uh, it's part of your fruit, the fruit of the spirit. But there's this aspect of correction that is part of love. Now, we, from what I hear, are rearing a whole generation today of, of young teenagers and 20-somethings that have been called millennials. Sometimes they are pejoratively referred to as snowflakes and that they have been brought up in a culture that has pampered them and spoiled them and has not trained them or disciplined, where if they are involved in competitions, everybody wins and nobody loses. And they have been shielded from a lot of the harsher realities of life. Unlike their grandparents or probably great-grandparents' generation that grew up during the 20s and the 30s and the early 40s, who grew up in the in the uh, Great Depression, who discovered the harsh, harsh realities of life on a day-to-day basis. And they had to deal with that, that sometimes there wasn't enough food on the table. Sometimes uh, dad didn't have a job. Sometimes mom didn't have a job. Sometimes uh, there was extremely bad weather. There was a drought. There was a dust bowl up in Oklahoma and the panhandle of Texas and many farmers were wiped out and they lost everything that they had. And these were harsh realities because that's the kind of world in which we live. And so a parent's job is to teach and to train children to be able to deal with those kind of harsh realities. And the child that doesn't is going to be a problem for society. But when you define love as as keeping all of those things from your children. Now, there can be a way in which parents approach difficulties, and instead of just blatantly letting bad things happen to their kids, they try to control the environment so that they have have, uh, teaching opportunities and can help kids grow through those difficulties, and that's important. But what happens with that idea of love, it is divorced from righteousness and justice. It is divorced from consequences and penalties, which if righteousness and justice are part of our concept of love, 
righteousness being an absolute standard for right and wrong and justice being the absolute standard that is applied, then it's not loving to protect your children like that. That, that love sets boundaries. And so as we've seen in Deuteronomy, there's a lot of use of the word love and talk about love, but we have one example in Deuteronomy 21.18 that is an example of love, but it's not thought of as by, by the average person as an example of love, but it is question that you should ask yourself when you read this is who is the object of love in the passage if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and who when they have chastened him he will not heed them notice that there's the the requirement there that they have attempted to train him they chastened him there have been consequences they're not just permissive they have trained him, tried to train him, and he has ignored them. So when they have chastened him, he will not heed them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city. In other words, he needs to be brought up on trial. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. You know, in other words, he's eating us out of house and home, and when we're not around, he's not only getting drunk, but he's doing drugs and everything else. And then the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, and you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, when we talk about love a lot of times, the focus is on while the parents directing love to the children. Where's the love directed in this application here? To the culture, to the society, that to rear a child that will grow up to be a, a criminal, a blight on society, and destructive to, what's the prime love directive in Deuteronomy? Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is it loving your neighbor to rear a psychotic, sociopathic criminal in your house that's spoiled to death because you failed to do your parental duty? That isn't loving your neighbor. So this is an example of what it means to love your neighbor, is to rear good children who are productive citizens, who understand truth and who understand uh the history of the United States so that they can be good leaders, good civic leaders, uh, and examples. So love not only looks at maybe the direct object of the love, but also others that are involved as objects of love. And it involves the application of justice. We see an example of that. It's quoted from the from the Proverbs, but it's stated clearly in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse five, five and six. And and you have forgotten. So this is the writer of Hebrews. 
giving a rebuke to his readers who are these priests, former Jewish priests, Levitical priests who have become believers. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. So it's emphasizing the fact that God brings discipline on those who are in his family. And the quotation from Proverbs is, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. See, if you start off with a permissive understanding of love, then what happens when there's a, an infraction, then you don't have a way to teach and correct and to improve. In other words, their, their punishment is the application of righteousness and justice in the, in, in the matrix of love. And this is demonstrated by God. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. See, right away where my mind goes on this is, you know, what do you do with a snowflake Christian? God's going to start taking them to the woodshed, and they're just going to absolutely lose it because that's not their comprehension of love or God or reality. And it's, But God says, it, but this passage is saying, if you're truly God's child, God will discipline you. God is going to give you punishment for your disobedience at times. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Love punishes. Love disciplines. Not in a self-absorbed way, motivated by anger and resentment because uh, a child has somehow invaded your space and you're not able to do what you think you should do, but in a mature way to train and teach and instruct a child so that they learn self-discipline and self-control and to emphasize um, the greater virtues. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges everyone whom he receives. What we learn from this is love is not in the Bible is not letting children do what they want. It's not saying, okay, you have a trend in your sin nature towards this sin or that sin, so I'm just going to look the other way and let you get away with it. And we're going to change it so it doesn't say that that's a sin anymore. We're going to just be permissive. What we see is that love sets boundaries, and those boundaries are determined by the righteousness of God, and then that is applied through God's justice. In Hebrews 12:7, we read, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now, isn't that an interesting statement there at the end? That's what's called a gnomic statement or a universal principle. When the writer of Hebrews says, what son is there whom a father does not chasten? What he is implying there is every father chastens their son. You're a failure as a father if you're not chastening your, your children, if you're not disciplining them in the right way. This is not an authorization for physical abuse, which is what liberals always react to and say, oh, you want to spank the kids, that's abuse. You go to some states in this country, and they're, they're outlawing this. If you're a parent and you spank your children, then you're a criminal. And this is just absolutely absurd and leads to the self-destruction of the 
family through the destruction of the integrity of the next generation. So the scripture says, what son is there whom a father does not chasten, implying that this is the norm. Then in verse 8, but if you are without chastening, in other words, if you're living your life as a Christian in permissiveness, then you are illegitimate and not sons. If God's not disciplining you, then maybe you're not part of the family. Maybe you are not a son of God, a child of God. So these are just some thoughts that we see from looking at the Old Testament, looking at these passages in reference to the integrity of God, that love is compatible with and necessarily joined with righteousness and justice and and truth. So now let's look at a uh, another key passage. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is often talked about as the love chapter. And in this chapter, we see a great description by the Apostle Paul of what love is. Mostly what we see is what love is not. It is a description. Last time I talked about the fact that there are some words in the Bible that are very, very hard to define, and there is a distinction between defining a word and describing a word, but the reality is that there are some words that are very difficult to define, and mostly what we have for these words are descriptions, and love is one of those words. A a description of love is interesting because, as we'll see at the end and as we go through this, is that that love is described mostly by negatives, what it is not. It is hard to describe love in, term, in positive terms, in ter- terms of what it is. So let's start going through 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. Actually, it goes into the first part of verse 8, which I'll include in this. I want to read through it first. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods and feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own and is not provoked. Uh, Thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Okay, that is Paul's most extensive discussion of what love is. It's divided into two sections. The first three verses are talking about certain uh, certain hyperbolic situations, certain examples of if I were to be able to do everything and then the description that he's talking about is not a description of reality. It's talking about 
some of the most extreme circumstances you can imagine. So if you had all these wonderful things, which nobody really does, but you don't have love, then no matter what you have, it's meaningless because love is what's essential. And we'll look at those three examples. And then he lists a variety of characteristics. I said three of these are positive, the rest are negative. And then he concludes with a statement, love never fails. In other words, love endures. This is how he ends the section when he says, now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Because love endures, but faith and hope are only for time. They are not for eternity. They're not for eternity because right now, remember First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 5 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. But when we're in heaven, we will be face to face with Jesus and we will be walking by sight. Faith is no longer operative. And we and hope. Hope is based on that which is not seen according to first uh, according to Romans uh, chapter 8. That hope is is based on the confident expectation of something that is not presently a reality. But when we are in heaven face to face with the Lord, hope is no longer there because we're face to face with the Lord. The expectation has arrived. Okay, now that's really important to understand because the contrast in this passage is really between that which is permanent and that which is not permanent. And his argument is that essentially these gifts are not permanent. And so often it's poorly misunderstood, but that gets into another question related to tongues, and we're not going there in this study. It's about talking about love. So what happens at the beginning here is that Paul sets up these three sort of conditions, and he's really being sarcastic. And he's being sarcastic because the Corinthians, this is one of the most messed up churches in history, they have already been roundly condemned by Paul for being self-absorbed, for being arrogant, for being divisive, for, for breaking up into clans and, and schisms and all kinds of different things. And one person says, I follow uh, Peter, and somebody else says, I follow Paul, and I'm better than the rest of you. I follow Apollos, and then the really super spiritual ones just go, I follow Jesus. And so that's, that's the foundation here. You have all this division that's going in. These are not super spiritual believers. These are real, really self-absorbed baby believers. And that's what Paul tells them all the way through, and he's constantly correcting them and correcting them and correcting them. Uh, so when you get here, he's not talking about things that are manifest in their uh, congregation, but things that aren't there. So because they've been emphasizing the wrong things. And that's what he emphasizes when he says, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, these are some of the things that they're claiming, that, that they have the gift of speaking in languages and they can speak angelic languages. Now, where did that idea come from? This idea came out of their pagan background because what dominated in Corinth, what dominated also over in Ephesus, was mystery religions. And when you have these mystery religions, one of the things that uh, came out of these mystery religions was this idea that 
that you could somehow, through some experience, whether it was through alcohol in the Dionysian religions or with it or, or some other method, that you could unite with the God and the God would speak through you. So what they're doing is they're, they, they've got these pagan ideas in their background and they're just bringing them with them into Christianity. That's not any different from what happens today. We have people today who've grown up in, in postmodern relativism in, in churches, and they've brought that postmodern relativism with them into church, and it affects their music, and it affects what they do on Sunday morning, it affects their Bible studies, it affects their whole approach to life, because this is always a problem with Christianity, is that in every generation, churches manifest a lot of the trends of the world because that's where these Christians are saved out of, and they bring those bad ideas with them into the church, and then the Word of God doesn't transform them, so they're still present in in the church in that era. Well, what we had in this in the ancient world was these various mystery religions, and so in order to unite with God, you have to come up with, with understand the secrets in these mystery religions. Uh, people were initiated into these movements, and through some sort of mystical experience, they would have these insights, okay? And, for example, one of the mystery religions was related to the Oracle of Delphi. Delphi was located not very far from from Corinth, just across the Isthmus of Corinth, and it was a very famous place, and you would go there to listen to the oracle. That's whom this, this young girl was referred to as the oracle. And she had her seat over this, this, this hole in the ground, as it were, where these fumes came up. And she would inhale these fumes, and she was high on that most of the time. And she was symbolized by a serpent. Now, where do you think the image of a serpent originally came from? You got to go back to Genesis chapter three. Okay, so she's uh, she had a spirit called a Puthanos spirit. Puthanos. Do you hear what our English word is there? Python. Okay, comes from that word Puthanos. Okay, so she would then speak in gibberish, this ecstatic utterance that was the language of the gods, and someone would translate it and give the prophecy related to whatever the person wanted to find out about. Now you can see that has certain affinities to what we now practice as a charismatic movement and what was practiced as so-called tongues by the Corinthians at that time. They were basically bringing these ideas with them out of their pagan past. So, so, so Paul is being somewhat sarcastic here and says, so you want to emphasize speaking in tongues and speaking in angelic languages. And see, that's one of the things you have with, uh, uh, with some charismatics that I have studied. They say, well, we can't prove that the languages that are spoken uh, as tongues today are real languages. There was a famous study by a man named William Samarin back in the late 60s. He was a linguist, and he took recordings of all of these uh, tongue speakers, and at the end he says there's no discernible linguistic patterns. 
See, a linguist doesn't have to know what any of the language means, but they can discern if there are linguistic patterns and if something they're listening to is gibberish or whether it is a legitimate language. And so what they would say is, well, we can't prove it's a legitimate human language, but we got an escape clause here. It's an angelic language. So we can keep doing it because it's the language of angels. Well, that wasn't anything new. The, the, the Corinthians were pulling the same kind of uh, trick back in the first century. And Paul says, so you make this claim. He's not legitimizing it. He's not saying there are different languages for angels even. He's just, he's just saying, okay, for the sake of argument, you can do all these things. If you don't do it with love, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's not doing anything for your spirituality. Because the issue is love and love's a fruit of the Spirit. And if you're not walking by the Spirit, whatever else you're manufacturing is not biblical spirituality. And he says, so if you make all this noise with your tongue and you don't have love, then you're just like a sounding black brass or a clanging symbol. Now, this is also interesting because in these ancient religions, they would use music. They would use, like we call them, the symbols are more like what we might refer to as castanets and tambourines, and they would use this, uh, the, these percussion-type instruments to get the gods' attention. And, and Paul, so Paul is really poking fun at them here and say, you know, you've just become these empty noisemakers that you use to get the attention of these false gods. See, you don't get that when you just read it in the English unless you understand a lot that's going on in these first century religions. But the sarcasm is, is thick. And, you know... I have a trend towards sarcasm, but the problem we have today is that sarcasm towards somebody's religious system is considered a sin. See, Satan just has, has his culture in his grip because they're redefining a lot of things that you have in the Bible as something that's unacceptable and sinful, and then you come along and you say, see, Paul is really poking fun by the God, the Holy Spirit, at false religions. And, oh, no, that's just terrible. God can't do it. We have to respect everybody's religion. And so, you know, the millennials run off, and they accuse you of just being disrespectful, and that can't be Christianity, and it's not love, because they don't start with biblical definitions. They start with their own assumptions. So Paul continues his sarcasm, again, with a, Third-class condition in the Greek, if, possibly, hypothetically, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. See, there were spiritual gifts where you of the gift of knowledge and where you could understand mysteries, that is, previously um, unrevealed truth. But here Paul uses this word all and and. He talks about how we, later on, he talks about we know in part and we prophesy in part because nobody knows all. Nobody has, nobody had a lock on every bit of revelation. So again, he's just being extremely, 
he's exaggerating. He's being extremely hyperbolic, and he's saying, if I could do all this, if I knew everything there was to know about all of Revelation, and I had all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not loved, then I'm nothing. If I did, did all of this, if I was super, super, uber spiritual, and I didn't have love, it doesn't matter. Because the thing, and what he's pointing out to them, is the things that you think are so important that make people so super spiritual really don't unless they have biblical love. Fit that in with John 13, 34, and 35. And then, then he says, And though I bestow all my goods and feed the poor, so this, real, this fits the social justice crowd. If I am giving everything, feeding the poor, taking the homeless in, letting all of the refugees and immigrants flood into the country, just taking care of all of them, if I do all of that, even to the point of self-sacrifice where I'm killed in the process, I give my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. And the point that he's saying is we've got to understand what biblical love is when God talks about biblical love. And now we're going to talk about the characteristics of that love, and we'll do that when we come back next week. Father, thank you for this time together. Challenge us, Lord, because this, this love that is being talked about in Scripture is foreign in many ways to what our culture teaches is love. And it's a love that's unique and distinct for the Christian life that is manufactured by God the Holy Spirit. And to exemplify this kind of love means that we have to get past ourselves. We have to focus on who you are. And we have to let everything be about Christ and the mission of the body of Christ and not about our lives and our good times in this existence. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to understand and implement love as we walk by the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.